Well, good morning. Well, good morning. It's great to see everyone this morning and we're live. We have some issues with on the technical side, but yeah, that's one of those things when you're dealing with, with, with tech items. Well, I just wanted uh, to say that um, I've been yearning to get back together and it's gonna be a, a special time coming on, on June 7th because uh, being away, is, it's quite difficult. And so uh, a, lot, a lot of changes have been taking place within families and it's gonna be a great time for us to catch up. And so being live, it's a different thing because um, I've never really spoken to a, uh, an auditorium that has really no one, but um, the angels are in rafters, my family is in the back row and we can still worship together. And so we thank you for your faithfulness. We, we thank you for you um, being a part of things. And no matter where you are hearing, um, hearing our, our worship time, uh, I hope God blesses you because of it. And so I just want to begin our time that if you can open your Bible to Psalm 145, we're going to begin with a word of prayer. And we're going to um, look at our passage in Isaiah chapter 6. And so... Um, Psalm 145 is one of my favorite psalms. No matter if I'm riding a, uh, a high or if I'm in um, the depths of, of a low, Psalm 145, a psalm written by David, always speaks to my heart. And so Psalm 145, and I trust that, uh, that, that you'll follow along. David is writing and he says this, I will extol you, my God. O King, I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you, and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and highly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another, and shall declare your mighty acts and on the glorious splendor of your majesty, and on your wonderful works, I will meditate. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts, and I will tell of your greatness. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness, and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all his works. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your godly ones shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord sustains all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, and kind in all his deeds. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him 
in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him, and he will also hear their cry and will save them. The Lord keeps all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and all flesh will bless his name forever and ever. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that as we come and to praise your name, and as we are the scattered church that are out there, whether or not it's in Fairfield County area or friends and family who may be watching via the internet, that we can come and to praise your name. For you are a God who not only loves us, but has revealed yourself to us in your word. Your word is something that makes us grow. It gives us understanding. Your spirit is there to teach us your word. But Father, through it all, we have the ability to come in your presence. For we can stand before you forgiven because of what Christ has done upon the cross. Thank you, Father, that you are gracious and merciful, that you are slow to anger, and you are great in your loving kindness. Your good, our lives are there before you as a living sacrifice, and we give you our life. And so, Father, as we come to your word this morning, we just want to put you and all your glory upon display. For each person is a living testimony that you are a God who saves, that you are a God who changes lives, that when we take our eyes off of you, our life is just mired with heaviness and, the, um, and our own abilities to where we constantly fall short. But we, Father, stand amazed to just be um, in a special place where we can praise your name. And so, Father, we ask that your spirit will not only speak to us, but change us. For as we come into your presence, we want to see you and all of your glory on display. So that when we leave our time together, our lives will be changed. And so, Father, we thank you for what you're going to be accomplishing this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's been in interesting because I've been wanting to preach over the last number of different, different weeks. And for some reason, I keep going into quarantine, being exposed to things and uh, finally out of quarantine, going back to work uh, in, in this coming week. And so um, I was trying to find a passage to speak to my heart. Um, something that I needed to hear from the Lord. And I am going to go to um, a passage that I've visited a long time ago. And it's one of my favorite passages. And it's something to where it reaffirms to myself that not only God is alive and that he is active, but he is a God that we can turn to in a time of crisis. So if you have your Bible, please open up to Isaiah chapter 6. Back in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 6, because we can all admit that we have just gone through a time of crisis in our country where everything that was normal has been turned upside down. And so when we get back together, when we are together to worship, 
when we get back to whatever that norm is going to be looking like, it's going to be different from how things were before. It's going to be a different kind, uh, kind of normal. And so it's been within my heart, what kind of normal do I want the Lord to be using as the years progresses on? And so there's been a number of times in which our country has been in a time of crisis. And it's interesting because God has used a number of great awakenings in our country's history to have massive movements of his spirits. And so they're always during times in which our country was in deep sin and men who were proclaiming the word of God began to uh, be the catalyst in which people got saved in mass numbers. And so that is my desire for God to speak and to move in such a way in which even if it is the end times in which it is in a number of, number of ways that we want God to speak. We want God to use the crisis that we have been through, going through, and will be going through to be a time in which people will see God's glory on display. So I've been looking for myself a renewal of my own heart, a movement of God to start within me and to begin to spread, whether or not it's through this place, but to revive New England to where the other revivals have taken place but for even if it's just for myself, that God will make me different because he is a God that we can turn to in a time of crisis. And this passage is, is exactly that, Isaiah chapter six. And during the time that we have, we're gonna look at the first eight verses. And so let me just sort of read the passage and then we'll begin to dissect things. Isaiah chapter six, beginning at verse one. Isaiah writes and he says, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty, exalted, with the train of his robe, filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. Two, with two, he covered his faith. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundation of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. And so within these eight verses, Isaiah is given a vision 
from the Lord. And it's interesting because this vision is taking place during a time in, in the southern kingdom's history in which they were divided. And so we get to see some of the context in, in which um, Isaiah is living. And to understand things, to really understand the feelings that are going on, you need to understand the background. For the passage in which opens up, Isaiah is the author. And his name throughout the book is given as Isaiah, the son of Amos. And we know him as Isaiah the prophet. And he lived around 740 B.C. King David lived around 1000 B.C. And Nehemiah rebuilt the wall about 444 B.C. And so it was a time in which the kingdom was divided. And Isaiah was probably one of the greatest prophets during Israel's time. And generally, when we think of a prophet, we think of somebody who comes from very humble means. Someone who was a peasant or someone who was a shepherd or, or picked figs or a farmer. But Isaiah was none of that. For his history was one of nobility. He was a recognized statesman who had access to the royal court. He was a consultant to the monarchs. And so he lived during a time in which it was before the exile, before the seven-year exile that the southern kingdom went into in Babylon. But being a prophet was not a vocation that one chose, like one chooses to be a doctor or one chooses to be a lawyer. Rather, <laughs> it was a position only God granted to certain people to accomplish certain tasks. Now, his influence was a long influence in which it lasted through four kings over a 60-year period. And so the passage in verse 1 opens up in which in the year of King Uzziah's death. So the king at, at this time was King Uzziah. And he was one of the better kings for the nation of Israel, especially for the southern kingdom at this time. Though he was righteous, he was really no David, but he wasn't as corrupt as most of the kings of Israel. For there were only eight good kings, godly kings, during this time out of 20. But he was probably one of the top five kings that Judah had because he was one of the godliest. And his reign lasted for 52 years. And to relate to that, you'd, you'd have to go back to if you were living at the time of Johnson, it, it would span through Johnson to President Nixon, through Ford, through Carter, through Reagan, through Bush 41, to Clinton, to Bush again, his son, uh, the son, to Obama and the Trump administrations. That's a very long reign. And so his... His time in which he was on the throne encompassed most of the people's lives. That's all they knew. All they knew was King Uzziah. And so during his reign, he brought to Judah glory that it once had through David and Solomon. He fortified Jerusalem. He brought a season of peace from out of the, a time of chaos. He increased their agriculture. He expanded their commons. So it was a time of great prosperity. So he was a beloved king. And so it was a time of peace and expansion. 
but also towards the end, the latter end of his reign, three main issues cropped up that influenced what would transpire thereafter. The first one was that it was a personal crisis came about. Towards the end of his reign, in 2 Chronicles 26, he began to act proudly, corruptly. And he, he felt because he was king, he could go bring his own offerings to the temple. And so the temple worship was only allowed for priests. And so he wanted to burn incense to the Lord, which was noble, but it, he, he wasn't a priest. And so he contracted a terminal case of leprosy. So his heart, Second Chronicles 26 tells us, was filled with pride because of all that he accomplished. The second issue for the nation was it was a time of national crisis. Five years before he died, the king of Assyria, Tiglath-Pileser, came to power and began to sort of overthrow countries. And so um, his uh, influence was so so wide that he overthrew the northern kingdom and he just uh, sent shockwaves of fear throughout the entire area for he wanted to expand his kingdom from the Euphrates to the Nile. And so they were a ruthless people, so ruthless that when they took over a city of all the people that they killed, they would take their heads and make a pile outside of the city to sort of uh, be a signal of the conquering that they did. So Assyria was a constant threat to the southern kingdom, and it brought about a uncertain fear. And the third issue, it was the state of the nation at this time. Because usually for the most part, if you had a godly king, the nation was generally godly. If you had an ungodly king, it was very ungodly. And so that generally was the people. So for the most part, the um, idolatry that the nation was doing was sort of held in check. Towards the end of his reign, it began to get um, out of control. Moral collapse began to be exper uh, experienced. The people began to get more self-indulgent, more disobedient, and they began to turn from the worship of Yahweh God to the worship of idols. And so the first five chapters begin to define the sins of the nation at this time in which God needed a prophet to be his mouthpiece. But King Uzziah kept a lid on this brewing pot. And we see in verse one, he died. And the people began to panic. Uncertainty sets in sin would begin to take off all the more. And this panic, I'm sure, affected godly hearts too, because with a new administration, you had no guarantee. You had no assurance that the next king would be faithful. And for the most part, Uzziah was faithful, and he was obedient to Yahweh God. But with the new administration, the son coming to power, he could lead to society back into an ever decadent system, uh, society. And so there was this crisis that was there. And in the midst of this crisis, God makes a personal appearance 
before Isaiah. And so um, that is the scene. And so the scene here is in the midst of a temple. Look at verse one. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord. Isaiah had a vision from God. Now, this was a supernatural occurrence, a supernatural event that took place. And when we think about dreams and visions in, in the Old Testament, we think it was something fairly common. But, uh, you, but when you actually look at the miracles and the dreams and the visions, they were actually very rare. We just have the record of it, but they were rare. God did not speak. God did not show himself often um, to the people that he wanted to communicate with. And so Isaiah has a vision. And as we begin to sort of unfold this passage, I have to do a footnote because I believe that God today does not work in this way any longer. There's no need to God to speak to his people any longer through dreams or visions. Why? It's because of the sufficiency of scripture. Second Peter 1 and verse 3, a verse that you already know, Peter says that seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him. God has given to his people in his word everything that we need to life and godliness because we have his word. We do not need anything else. His word is completely sufficient. But it's sad to say that there are many today who believe in the sufficiency of scripture, and they would say that, but in reality, they really don't because they would say that God can still speak to people through dreams and visions, which would mean that God is still giving out special revelation to a few people. And we would need more for life and godliness than what his word has. But Peter is very clear. We have everything pertaining to that we need to know for life and godliness that is found in his word. We have no need to God to speak to us any longer. His word is complete. But Isaiah didn't have his word. So he was in, in the process of being his mouthpiece. And so God is making an appearance to Isaiah here, here to bring a message to his people throughout his entire lifetime. And this vision that he has in verse one is going to be foundational for his entire ministry as a prophet, because he was going from being an ordinary prophet to an extraordinary proclaimer of the word of God, even if he were to stand alone. Because I wish I had time to sort of develop verses nine and following. Um, God is going to use him but they're not gonna listen to him. They're gonna have closed ears and closed eyes, but he still needs to be a proclaimer. And so God gives him a, an appearance to where he sees the Lord. It's interesting because you have to note that that word Lord there is the same word, um, it looks like the same word that we also have um, down in verse three. But in reality, there are two different Hebrew words. 
One has a capital L with small letters, and the other one is in all caps. Here in verse 1, we have the word Lord, which is the Hebrew word Adonai, which means sovereign one. Isaiah sees the sovereign one. It's a title for God which expresses the supreme position given to God. It comes from the Hebrew root word means to command or to rule. The Greek uh, word translated here in the Septuagint is the word kurios, which means to rule, which is the same word given to Jesus as Lord, kurios, the sovereign one. But in verse 3, the, if you look at uh, the wording there, they're all in capitals. And so the translators tried to make a difference between the one word by putting it with giving it small letters and the other word um, that's in all caps. The word in verse three is the word Yahweh, the sacred name for God, the tetragrammaton for the Jews, which means the four letter words that were unspeakable to them because they held that name so sacred that they had a fear of profaning it so much so that they forgot how to say it. And so it's the word that we say Yahweh or Jehovah. It points to God's relationship to Israel, both in his saving acts and his sees the Lord. And he's saying that in the year in which we lost our human king, I saw the real king. He's seated on a throne and he is still sovereign. When his physical world seemed like it was falling apart, when threats within society and threats outside of society that they were there, God was still on the throne. And so he says, he sees the Lord. He's seated on a place of exaltation, a place in which a king would rule, and he is lofty and exalted in a position of exaltation. The sovereign one was high and lifted up above all those who were under him. And he goes on to say his train of the robe filled the entire room. The length of a king's robe would state his power and authority. And this is a picture of his majesty and exaltation, his glory and his power. He is the most high God, and it's a picture of God's Shekinah glory filling the room. He is ruling. He is ultimately majestic. He is ultimately in power. This must have been a marvelous picture for Isaiah. But I want you to look at, um, keep your finger there in Isaiah chapter 6, but I want you to go over into the New Testament to John chapter 11, chapter 12. Because John is going to give us a commentary on Isaiah chapter 6. And it's interesting because here in Isaiah 6, he sees God. He sees Adonai. But John is going to say that Christ, that Isaiah is actually seeing a pre-incarnate picture of Christ himself. John chapter 12, look at verse uh, 41. 
It says, these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory. So it, 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 it's about 300 years before the Messiah would come. And it is within the passage in which John says three times, he goes, he goes back to quote the prophet Isaiah. The first one in verse 38, he quotes Isaiah 53, in which he says that Messiah is going to come and no one is going to believe him. No one believes his message. No one believes his reports. And then again in verse 39, they could not believe for Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. That's at the end of chapter 6. But before that, in verse 41, Isaiah said all of those things because he saw Christ's glory. And he spoke of who? Him. This is the pre-incarnate picture of Christ in Isaiah chapter 6. So in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the sovereign one, the same sovereign one that's in the uh, New Testament is the one in the Old Testament. And he is high and lifted up. And then in beginning in verse 2, we see the temple's occupants. He's not alone. There are other people with him. And we get a description of these occupants. They're angelic creatures. Look at verse 2. The seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. It's interesting because we don't talk about the angelic world all too much. Back when I was going to school in Chicago, I actually had a class on angels, and we only came up with uh, 12 hours because there's only 12 weeks, and so... Uh, there isn't all that much. But a few things that we do know is that there are cherubim. That's a class of angels. There's the seraphim. That's another class of angels. There's the four living creatures, which may be its own class, which may be a certain class of seraphim. There's the archangels. They, they're just sort of there. And that's really all we know. We don't know all that much about the angelic world. We only have glimpses of them. And here we have the seraphim in which they are called by God to attend to God's holiness. They're in the presence of God. Their name even means the burning ones or the fiery ones. And so they are the God guardians, the presence and the holiness of God. It is interesting because when we generally think of angels, we think of, you know, cherub with two wings. But these angels had six wings. And immediately in my mind, I think of a, a Picasso painting, you know, a picture with three noses and a few mouths and this distorted. Somehow they had six wings because one has to realize that when God makes something, he makes it with function. He makes it for the environment in which they live. And these angels have a purpose for the six wings. The first set, we find out that they flew. And usually that's what we think of angels. We think of angels having the ability to fly. And here we see that they have the capacity to fly and to hover and to be ready to serve God whenever he calls. 
And so when, it, when God has a task to be done, they take care of it instantaneously. The second set of wings we see here is that with two, he covered his face. So they're taking two of the wings and they're covering their faces. And my first question was, why? Well, they are exposed to the full glory of God. And even them as angelic beings cannot gaze upon God's Shekinah glory directly. It's almost like us if we were to go outside this morning and to look directly into the sun, we would do permanent damage to our eyes. Even back in Exodus 30, 33, God is telling Moses, go and lead my nation. And we find a passage where God is going to show Moses his glory, but he can't do it directly. And Moses says, who will go with me? Because Moses wanted proof. And he says, I will be your proof. And so Moses says, show me your glory. And God says to him, no man shall see my glory and live in verse 21. So God takes Moses, tucks him inside the cleft of the rock, and he's going to show Moses his hind parts or his, his reflection or his afterglow. And so no creature, whether of this earth or whether a creature in heaven could stand the sight of the blazing glory of God. And so they are equipped to cover their eyes, to shield their eyes for the full blinding glory of God's presence. But yet there's yet a third set of wings. These are used to cover their feet. Even though they're still heavenly beings, they're still creatures. And they still have to cover their feet from the presence, being in the presence of a holy God. Goes back to um, Exodus chapter 3. If you remember the burning bush, Moses is there in the wilderness. And he sees a bush that on fire but is not getting consumed. And he goes closer and a voice calls out to him to take off his shoes because he was standing on what? Holy ground. The ground was set apart. But what made the ground holy? Why was it set apart from every other place upon the earth? It wasn't because of the presence of Moses. It was because of the presence of God. And whenever God makes an, an appearance, everything is immediately sanctified because God is there. And so the throne area is so sacred that even the seraphim themselves need to cover their feet because they're in the presence of a holy God. And so it is an acknowledgement of their lowliness between them and God who is supreme. And so we see that four of these wings are associated with worship emphasizing the priority of praise. So they are incredible creatures. He sees the temple. He sees the throne and the one on it. And then he sees the And they're not silent. They make declarations. So look at verses three and four. And one called out to another saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory. 
Theologians like to come up with $10 words. They, they call the holy, 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 the trihagion because it's repeated three times. Some say it's, it stands for the Trinity, and which it may, but I think that could be just a secondary issue. Because if you begin to understand Hebrew, and when the Hebrews wanted to emphasize something, they wanted to repeat it. In English, when we want to emphasize something, we use italics, or we use a bold-faced font, or we use the exclamation point. And so there's something that, that's of emphasis there, that we want to make it stand out. We want to draw attention to it. And so here we have the angels, the seraphim, crying out, holy, holy, holy is God, the Lord of hosts. And the idea here is not only that God is holy, but he is doubly holy. Not only is he doubly holy, but he is, I'm going to make up a word, triply holy. He's three times as holy. And so God is holy. And that's the emphasis that we have. Even our Lord emphasized things in the New Testament for many times in the gospel where he would, he would want to make a, a statement that wanted to be uh, stand out from the other ones, he would say, verily, verily, I say unto you, or truthfully, truthfully, or truly, truly. It comes from the ancient word, amen, amen. And so Christ would say at the beginning of his emphasis that this is especially true. And so he would repeat himself. And it's interesting to note here that this is one of God's characteristics, but out of all of God's attributes that we know, this is the only one that's repeated. It's repeated three times. The Bible never says that God is a God of love, 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 or God is grace, 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 or mercy, 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 or wrath, wrath, wrath. We find that this is a lens, when you look at God, that begins to define who God is. God is holy, holy, holy. R.C. Sproul puts it this way, that this uh, um, three usage is an exaltation of this attribute to the supreme degree. And so when you begin to think about God, most people do not think about how holy of a God he is. And we can never fully know God until we begin to understand and wrestle with God's holiness. We can never understand God's love without knowing his holiness. We can never understand his mercy or his grace without knowing about his holiness. We can never understand the nature of sin without his holiness. One will never understand the gospel without knowing and understanding his holiness. One will never understand God is wrathful and angry at sin because he is a utterly holy God and he must judge the sinner of their sin. Today, most people don't think of God that way. 
They like to park that God is a God of love because they think that the God on the right side of the Bible acts differently than the God of the left side of the Bible because he is a God of love and he forgives, which he is. But to understand him fully, to understand his love, you have to understand that he cannot tolerate sin because he is a holy God. And the sinner must be judged for their sin because no one meets his standard. And as we shall see, it is God's standard that defines who he is. We cannot define God in our terms, but God has revealed himself in his word and we understand him because of his revelation. And God here is holy. He is holy. He is holy. Now, the basic meaning of that means to set apart, to uh, be separate is the root word. In the temple itself, um, they had holy items. They had uh, candelabras, they had showbread, the high priest garments, they were holy garments, they were holy utensils, for their use was only for the temple. They were set apart for strict use, for strict service for God. One couldn't bring them home and just use them casually. They were set apart. So now when you try to understand God's holiness, you just begin to amplify his set-apartness to the extreme. When you think about God's holiness, there are two basic meanings you have to keep in mind. Two things, the primary meaning of God's holiness is that he is completely distinct and separate from everything. We see here he's high and lifted up. God is set apart from all that there is. And that means he's in his own class. He's the most high God. He is highly exalted. He is most regal. He is most sovereign. He is distinct from everything outside of himself. He is different from everything that there is. And you can say that he's in the class all by himself. He is a holy God. And he is separate from lowly, sinful man. And so God's, that is God's primary meaning when you look at holiness. But it doesn't stop there. Though he is set apart, though he is transcendent, though he is high and lifted up, secondly, God's holiness addresses his moral purity. When the angels cry out about God's holiness, they are declaring God's moral purity. He is, pure, he is perfectly pure in his being, he is pure, perfectly pure in his thoughts, in his motives, in his will. He is absolutely sinless, flawless. He is, it is impossible for him to do any kind of error. He is utterly free from all sin. And so that is his entire being. There is nothing like God. There is nothing that is compared to him. He is holy. One other place that I just want you to look at real quick, turn to the left to Exodus chapter 15. In Exodus chapter 15, we have the second time the word holy is used in scripture. 
The first one was found in, in chapter three, which Moses is standing on holy ground. But I just want out of the myriad of passages to sort of underscore God's holiness, whether or not it's in the Psalms or in statements or in the Proverbs. Exodus 15 is a great song of Moses because Moses wrote Psalms too. This is a song of Moses. The nation of Israel have just seen God destroy Pharaoh's army at the Red Sea. And Moses writes a song and the nation sings this. This is, and we get to see God's holiness and his holy actions and his all powerfulness on display. God's power is on display. God's salvation for his people is on display and the people sing. Look at verse one of Exodus 15. The song begins by saying, I will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted. Why? The horse and his riders he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God, I will extol him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariot and his army he has cast into the sea and the choices of his officers are drowned in the sea. Look at verse six. Your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Verse seven, and the great overthrow those who rise up against you. Go down to verse 10. You blew your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Now here it is, verse 11. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Meaning the gods of Egypt, the one he, in which he just sent the plagues. Each one represented a different Egyptian god. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? He is set apart. He is exalted. Awesome in praises. Working what? Wonders. And so God's holiness is on display for his people. Going back to Exodus chapter 6, and that is the exact message the angels are declaring three times for emphasis. God is not only holy, but he is three times holy. And I believe that the evangelical church today, never mind that God is three times holy and the implications of that, God's holiness is rarely talked about. Our faith can be so shallow, our compromise so frequent. We can get so smug with our faith, so quick to judge others. But God is holy. He is not like us. And, if, and that holiness affects who he is in every respect. But the angel's message doesn't stop there. Um, look at the next part of the verse, the end of verse 3. The earth is full of his glory, is full of the declaration of his greatness, his majesty, his power, his glory. One should be able to look out and see creation around them and just praise God. 
But man goes through this life with blindfolds. They see nothing of God. They see nothing of his glory. God has to give them special eyes to see, special ears to hear. And God's glory is just all around. We need to be on that narrow path, going through the narrow gate to be able to see the glories of God. Many people, they're on the broad path thinking they went through the narrow gate. But you cannot be on a broad path and go through the narrow gate. You have to be on the narrow gate and go through the narrow path. And so when we put our, our faith and trust in Christ, those blinders are taken off. We see our sin, and the response to, to this should be the same as Isaiah's. And so what God do you see? Do you only see God as a God of love, or do you see him as three times holy? Because at the declaration of that, the foundations of the thresholds tremble at the voice of him who called out because he is sovereign, and the temple was filled with his smoke. And then in verse 5, we see Isaiah's response. How does one respond seeing the, uh, seeing the Lord on the throne, hearing the declarations of how holy he is? And Isaiah said, woe is me, for I am what? I'm ruined because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What is his response? He pronounces a curse upon himself. Because generally when a, when a prophet spoke, he would generally um, say a, there was a positive aspect sometimes, that there was a blessing to it. Or there could be a negative con, uh, con, uh, de declaration to where it would be a pronouncement of a judgment or a curse. Our Lord pronounced judgment on the religious leaders of Israel, where he said, woe to you, Pharisees and scribes. You're just uh, leaders of the blind. And uh, here he pronounces a curse upon himself after seeing the holiness of God in hearing the declaration of how set apart he is from the angels. He says, cursed is me for I am ruined. After seeing this, what's left? I just need to die. I just need judgment. I am ruined. Why? Because for the first time in Isaiah's life, he fully understands the totality of God, that he is not just holy, but he is utterly holy. For he sees him high, lifted up, separated. And the source of his uncleanness not only comes from outside of him, living in uh, unclean people, but from himself, because he knew how much he would fall short. Even our Lord said in Matthew 15 and verse 11, it is not what goes, goes out into a man's mouth that defiles him, but what comes out of his mouth that defiles him. So it's not what goes into it that defiles him, but it's from his heart and what comes out that shows his defilement. 
And so he sees himself as ruined. We don't have time, but in Luke chapter 5, Peter is on the water. He has his same type of experience to where they've been fishing all night. And they caught nothing. And a voice from a person on the shore said, put out into deep water. Throw out your nets and catch. But they say, we haven't caught anything. But they do it anyway. And when they do, their, their nets began to break. And they had to signal for more boats to come and to help drag in the nets. But it says in verse 8 of Luke 5 that when, Pilate, when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. No matter how good we are, we fall short of the glory and holiness of a almighty God. He is majestic. He is high. And how much we fall ever short. But look at verse 6. God isn't finished with him. God has prepared him. And he needs a cleansing. Verse 6. One of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And the seraphim took one of the white coals and approached Isaiah. And he didn't, if you notice, he didn't come close to Isaiah to punish him. He didn't come close to him to rebuke him or to torture him or to even destroy him. He, he approaches Isaiah to cauterize his mouth, to clean the uncleansing of, of his body, to burn it away because his mouth needed to be cleansed. Because the tool of a prophet is his mouth. And he goes for the lips. And the lips here is probably a, a, a picture of the sign in which uh, people show affection. They're very tender. They're the place in which words come out. In verse 7, he touched my mouth with, with that coal and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. And look what it says. Your iniquity is taken away. And your sin is forgiven. Whenever a person sees their sinfulness and they realize their hopelessness in themselves to ever approach a holy God, what is there left? To realize that God has given a means of salvation. To have their iniquity taken away and their sin is forgiven. We know that from, uh, from the passage back in John, he's seeing a, a, a Christ, that it, he's looking forward, that this is, this is the way of salvation. It's the same salvation as um, Abraham had, to where he trusted in God's righteousness and was saved. And so here, these are words of comfort and joy for all those who put their trust in Christ. When they see how much they fall short, and they have nowhere to go because they see a holy God who is three times holy. And they turn to him. They go, there's nothing I can do on my own. And their iniquity taken away. Their past sins, their present sins, their future sins. He washes them all away and he gives them eternal life. 
Christ died the death and paid the judgment that was given to us. And he washes those things away because he died in our place. He was our substitute, even though he committed none of those sins. And so now he is ready. In verse 8, he gets his commission. His mouth has been purged. He has been washed clean. He's ready to be used by God. And he says, he heard a voice of the sovereign one, the Lord, saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? So Adonai is speaking here. And Isaiah says, Here am I. Send me. And so he says, I am available. And so there's a difference between here I am and there's a difference between I am here. Here I am expresses location, but here I am says that I am available if you choose to use me. And so God calls out Isaiah and Isaiah says, here am I, send me. Powerful passage, is it not? God's glory is on display. His holiness is being declared. He is not only holy, but he is three times holy. But there are these five things that we could sort of draw for ourselves because of Isaiah's vision that he had. First of all, we should want to be obedient to God in the same way that when he, uh, Isaiah saw God's holiness, we are also commanded to be holy. Just as what Pastor Joey was preaching about in 1 Peter chapter 1, where Peter says, don't be conformed to your former lusts in which were yours in ignorance. But then he goes on to quote Leviticus. Before it is written, you shall be holy for what? I am holy. That is the expectation that God has for all his people. Holiness, separateness, that they're different from the world. It affects all of our behavior. And so we should, like Isaiah, want to be ready to be used by God. Secondly, when you begin to understand God's holiness, we should hate the things God hates. For he is so separate from sin. He cannot tolerate sin. Whatever is out there in the world, we should be hating the same thing because God hates those things. Thirdly, we should be sorrowful of our sins when we do sin. In Romans chapter 7, we see that struggle that Paul had. It is like, I do, I do things I don't want to do and the things I want to do I just can't do because we never will ever become perfect but when we do sin we should be sorrowful of sin because we know that God is holy and I should be the same way and then fourthly we should hunger more to know more about God it's a lifetime and and Denver, it's a lifetime study. We should be in his word, communicating to him in prayer, hungering to know him, because how much do we actually know of him? 
We're going to spend all eternity hungering to know him better. So it should start now. And then fifthly, we should represent God to a world. If we are called to be holy and commanded to be holy because God is holy, and if we are his ambassadors, we are to be representing God in this world through our changed life. And so I know for myself, this was such a needed passage that I needed to be reminded of. Because it's so easy to get complacent. And being in quarantine and being locked down and being, well, what is the church going to do when it gets back together? It starts with me understanding God's holiness. It starts with my, my message. Lord, if you want to use me, here I am. Lord, if you want to have another great awakening, because it, within our society, people are troubled. They're anxious. They see the frailty of life. What's going to happen if everything got taken away? People are still dying today from the virus. And we have a message that we can take to them, that their sins can be forgiven and their iniquity to be taken away. So when Isaiah, son of Amos, left the temple, he left it differently was not going to be an easy task for the following verses. You're going to go out and they're not going to listen. They're not going to hear. They're not even going to bother. But he was to be used greatly by God. And he was a display on how through his life and his message, how utterly holy God was and how wretched he was. But now God changed him to be his mouthpiece. Let's pray. Father, so much more could be said, but it is through Isaiah's example we can see that we really don't think about how holy you are. Pastor Joey has been speaking about heaven and how heaven is so different than from this life. But during the time that we, are, that we still have this life, we yearn to be used greatly by you. And so, Father, we ask that you can use your church, use your people here, so when we come back together, that we will be changed. We will be a different people because we have seen your glory on display. So thank you, Father, and what you're going to do. Bring us back together. Make us different. Because we have seen Isaiah's vision of you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless.